0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 7 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Catherine of Valois, Chapter One, Part One. Catherine of Valois was a babe in the cradle when Henry V, as Prince of Wales, became an unsuccessful suitor for the hand of her eldest sister Isabella, the young widow of Richard II. Catherine was the youngest child of Charles VI, King of France, and his queen, Isabeau of Bavaria. She was born at a period when her father's health and her mother's reputation were both in evil plight. She first saw the light, October 27th, 1401, at the Hotel de Saint-Paul, in Paris, a palace which was used during the reign of Charles VI, as a residence of retirement for the royal family, when health required them to lead a life of more domestic privacy than was possible at the king's royal court of the Louvre the young princess was reared at the hotel de st paul and there did her unfortunate sire charles the sixth spend the long agonizing intervals of his aberrations from reason during which the infancy of his little daughter was exposed to hardships such as seldom fall to the lot of the poorest cottager Queen Isabeau joined with the king's brother, the Duke of Orleans, in pilfering the revenues of the royal household, and to such a degree did this wicked woman carry her rapacity, as to leave her little children without the means of supporting life. These royal infants were shut up in the Hotel de Saint-Paul, wholly neglected by their vile mother, the Princess Michelle being then only five years old, and the Princess Catherine little more than three. The poor children, say their contemporary chroniclers, were in a piteous state, nearly starved, and loathsome with dirt, having no change of clothes, nor even of linen. The whole sustenance they had was from the charity of the inferior attendants, who had not deserted the place. All the servants of the royal family, being left by the profligate and reckless Isabeau, without food or wages. The state of Catherine's hapless father, who occupied a part of the palace of St. Paul, was still more deplorable. But he was unconscious of his misery, till one day he suddenly regained his senses, and observed the disarray and neglect around him. The instant Charles the Sixth recovered from his attack of delirium, he appears to have resumed his royal functions, without any intermediate time of convalescence. The consequence was, that directly the news was brought to the queen, that her husband spoke and looked composedly. A sense of her guilt caused her to decamp with Louis of Orleans to Milan, having ordered Duke Louis of Bavaria, her brother, and the partisans of her iniquities, to follow with the royal children. Louis not only obeyed this order, and carried off the Dauphin Louis, his two younger brothers, and the princesses Michelle and Catherine, but with them the children of the Duke of Burgundy. The Burgundian forces having arrived at the Hotel de Saint-Paul, and missing the princely children, the Duke of Burgundy sent a troop of his men-at-arms, in pursuit of them. For the heir of Burgundy, who was even then betrothed to Catherine's sister, Michelle, was abducted with his little spouse. The pursuers overtook the two princely families at Jubici, and after possessing themselves of the children of Burgundy and the Princess Michelle, they respectfully asked the dauphin Louis, then about ten years old, whither he would please to go. The royal boy replied, I will return to my father. He was joyfully obeyed and conducted back to Paris with his sister Catherine and the rest of the royal children of France. After the Duke of Burgundy had caused the assassination of Orlan in the streets of Paris, the conduct of Queen Isabeau became so infamous that she was imprisoned at Tours, and her daughter Catherine, the only one of the princesses who was not betrothed or consecrated, was taken from her. There is reason to believe that Catherine was brought up in the convent of Poissy, where her sister Marie took the veil. Whilst the education of Catherine the Fair is proceeding, a few pages must be devoted to the personal history of that popular hero, her future husband. Henry V is supposed to have been born in 1387. Monmouth Castle, the place of his birth, belonged to his mother's inheritance. It is one of the most beautiful spots in our island. As Henry was a sickly child, he was, according to tradition, taken to Courtfield to be nursed a village about five or six miles from Monmouth. His cradle is still preserved, and is shown as a curiosity at Bristol. The name of his nurse was Joan Waring, on whom, after he came to the throne, he settled an annuity of twenty pounds, for her good services performed for him. He was given a learned education, the first foundation of which was, in all probability, laid by his mother, who was, as Froissart expressly declares, skilled in Latin and in cloister divinity. This princess died in the year 1394, in early life, leaving an infant family consisting of four sons and two daughters. The maternal grandmother of young Henry, the Countess of Hereford, bestowed some care on his education. This is proved by the fact that he left in his will to the Bishop of Durham, a missal and a protophorium given to him by his dear grandmother henry was extremely fond of music and this taste was cultivated at a very early age in proof whereof the household book of his grandsire john of gaunt may be cited new strings were purchased for the harp of the young hero before he was ten years old about the same time there is a charge for the scabbard of his little sword, and for an ounce of black silk to make his sword not. And moreover, four shillings were expended in seven books of grammar for his use, bound up in one volume. There is likewise an item, for payment of a courier to announce to Henry of Bolingbroke, the alarming illness of the young Lord Henry, his son. Richard the Second, during the exile of Bolingbroke, took possession of his heir. The education of young Henry was finished in the palace of his royal kinsman, who made him his companion in his last expedition to Ireland. Here young Henry was made a knight banneret, by the sword of the king, after distinguishing himself in one of the dangerous but desultory combats with the insurgents. While Richard went to fulfill his ill fortune in England, he sent young Henry to the castle of Trim in Ireland, with his cousin German, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, whose father he had lately murdered. Young Henry was brought home from Ireland, after his father had revolutionized England, in a ship fitted out for that purpose by Henry Dryhurst of Westchester. He met with his father at Chester, and in all probability accompanied him on his triumphant march to London. Cretan affirms that Henry the Fourth made his son Prince of Wales at his coronation, But I think, adds Richard's sorrowing servant, he must win it first, for the whole land of Wales is in a state of revolt, on account of the wrongs of their dear lord, King Richard. There is reason to suppose that, after his sire's coronation, Prince Henry completed his education at Oxford, for there is an antique chamber of Queen's College, pointed out by successive generations, as once having been inhabited by Henry. This is a room over the gateway, opposite to St. Edmund's Hall. A portrait of Henry was painted in the glass on the window, and under these verses in Latin. To record the fact forever, the emperor of Britain, the triumphant lord of France, the conqueror of his enemies and himself, Henry V, of this little chamber once the great inhabitant. Fuller, who lived more than a hundred years after Henry, points out the same college chamber as the abiding place of the prince. Henry was placed at Oxford under the tutorship of his half-uncle, Henry Beaufort, a young, handsome, and turbulent ecclesiastic, whose imperious haughtiness did not arise from his ascetic rigidity of manners as a priest. Beaufort had accompanied his charge to Ireland and returned with him to England. The early appointment of the prince as lieutenant of Wales, March 7th, 1403, limits the probable time of his sojourn at Oxford as a student, to the period between the commencement of the year 1400 and 1402. The prince was but sixteen when he fought courageously at that great conflict, where his father's crown was contested. At the Battle of Shrewsbury, when advancing too rashly on the enemy's forces, he received a wound with an arrow in the face, the scar of which might be seen all his life, being advised to retire, that the steel might be drawn out. To what place, he said, who will remain fighting, if I, the prince, and a king's son, retire for fear at the first taste of steel? Let my fellow soldiers see that I bleed at the first onset, for deeds, not words, are the duties of princes, who should set the example of boldness until after fourteen o seven the prince of wales was actively employed in the welsh campaigns although glendower was finally beaten back to his mountain fastnesses yet the whole of the principality was during the reign of henry the fourth but a nominal appendage to the english monarchy thus deprived of the revenues annexed to his title the gallant henry was subjected to the most grinding and bitter poverty His wild dissipation seemed to have commenced, after his desultory campaigns in Wales concluded, when he returned to court with no little of the license of the partisan soldier. His extreme poverty, which was shared by his royal sire, made him reckless and desperate, and had the natural consequence of forcing him into company below his rank. Stowe, in his annals, declares, the prince used to disguise himself and lie in wait, for the receivers of the rents of the crown lands, or of his father's patrimony, and in the disguise of a highwayman, set upon them and robbed them. In such encounters, he sometimes got soundly beaten, but he always rewarded such of his father's officers, who made the stoutest resistance. But Henry's wildest pranks were performed at a manor of his, close to Coventry, called Chalismore, a residence appertaining to his duchy of Cornwall. Here Prince Hal and some of his friends were taken into custody by John Hornsby, the mayor of Coventry, for raising a riot. Chalusmore was regarded by his careworn father with painful jealousy. For thither, says Walsingham, resorted all the nobility as to a king's court, while that of Henry the Fourth was deserted. But Henry did not content himself With astonishing John Hornsby, the mayor of Coventry, and his somber citizens, by a mad frolic now and then, he saw the inside of a London prison, as well as the jail of Coventry. It does not appear that the prince was personally engaged in the uproars raised by his brothers, Prince John and Prince Thomas, at Eastcheap, which are noted in the London Chronicle. But in one of these frays, the Lord Mayor captured a favorite servant belonging to the Prince of Wales, and carried him before judge gascoigne directly the prince of wales heard of the detention of his servant he rushed to the court of justice where his man stood arraigned at the bar he endeavoured with his own hands to free him from his fetters and on the interference of the judge bestowed on that functionary a box on the ears for which outrage gascoigne dauntlessly reproved the prince and, at the end of a very suitable lecture, committed him to the prison of the king's bench, to which Henry, who was struck with remorse at his own mad violation of the laws of his country, submitted with so good a grace, that Henry the Fourth made the well-known speech. He was proud of having a son who would thus submit himself to the laws, and that he had a judge who could so fearlessly enforce them. This exploit is supposed to have been the reason that Henry the Fourth removed his son from his place at the Privy Council. The desperate state of the prince's finances, it is possible, might irritate him into these excesses, for all his English revenues were swallowed up in the prosecution of the war to reconquer Wales. Indeed, his chief income was derived from the great estates of his ward, the Earl of March. This young prince, who possessed a nearer claim to the throne of England than the line of Lancaster, had been kept a prisoner in Windsor Castle from his infancy. In 1402, Henry the Fourth gave the person of the minor earl, with the wardship of his revenues, to his eldest son, thus putting no small temptation in the path of an ambitious young hero. But here the very best traits of Prince Henry's mixed character developed themselves he formed the tenderest friendship for his helpless ward and rival. From time to time, Henry the Fourth made attempts to obtain a wife for his heir. In the preceding memoir, it has been shown that he was, in childhood, contracted to the eldest daughter of Joanna, Duchess of Bretagne, afterwards, his stepmother. The biography of Isabella of Valois, has proved how long and assiduously Prince Henry wooed the young widow of the murdered Richard, until all hope ended in her marriage with Orlan. Marie, the second daughter of France, was the next object of his choice, but she, who had been devoted to the cloister even before her birth, on being consulted whether she would prefer an earthly spouse and accept the Prince of Wales, indignantly reproved her father's envoys for imagining so profane a thought. A daughter of the Duke of Burgundy was demanded for Prince Henry, but the negotiation was unsuccessful. At last, both the prince and his father seemed to have determined on obtaining the hand of the fair Catherine, the youngest of the princesses of France, and a private mission was confided to Edward, Duke of York, to demand her in marriage for the Prince of Wales. York was absent on this errand, at the time of the death of Henry the Fourth. Modern research has found reason for the supposition that Prince Henry was intriguing to depose his father just before his last fatal sickness. The angry assertions of Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, accuse Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, of the double treachery of instigating the Prince of Wales to seize his father's crown, and at the same time of plotting to assassinate the prince. These are Gloucester's words. My brother was, when Prince of Wales, in great danger once, when he slept in the green chamber at Westminster Palace. There was, discovered, by the rouse of a little spaniel belonging to the prince, a man concealed behind the arras, near the prince's bed. When he was hauled out by Henry's attendants, a dagger was found on the man's person, and he confessed he was hidden there to kill the prince in the night, instigated by Beaufort but when the Earl of Arundel heard this, he had the assassin's head tied in a sack, and flung into the Thames, to stifle his evidence. Although no chronology is expressly marked for these events, yet internal evidence refers them to the close of Henry the Fourth's existence, just before the extreme indisposition of that monarch caused the prince to seek a reconciliation with his father. This he did in a manner usually considered very extraordinary. He came to court on a New Year's Day, dressed in a dark blue robe, worked with oilettes around the collar, to each of which hung a needle and thread, and this robe, it is asserted, was meant to indicate how much his vilifiers had slandered him to his royal sire. Why needles and threads should point out such an inference has been an enigma, but it is explained easily enough by the memorialist of Oxford, There is a quaint old custom, founded by Robert de Eaglesfield, still in use in Oxford at Queen's College on New Year's Day, when the bursar presents to each of the members of the college a needle and thread, adding this exordium, take this and be thrifty. What the fellows of Queen's do now, with these useful implements, we know not. In the time of Prince Hal, they certainly stuck them on their collars. The prince went to court wearing all the needles he had received from his bursar, it being the anniversary of their presentation on New Year's Day. He likewise wore the student's gown, which at the same time reminded his sire that he had not forgotten the lessons of thriftiness he had imbibed at Queen's College. Thus appareled, he advanced into the hall of Westminster Palace, and leaving all his company, because the weather was cold, round about the coal fire, in the center of the hall he advanced singly to pay his duty to his father, who was with his attendants at the upper end. After due salutation, he implored a private audience of his sire. Henry the Fourth made a sign to his attendants to carry him in his chair, for he could not walk, into his private chamber, when the Prince of Wales, falling on his knees, presented his dagger to his father, and requesting him to pierce him to the heart, if he deemed that it contained any feeling but duty and loyalty towards him. Henry the Fourth melted into tears, and a thorough explanation and reconciliation took place between the father and the son. The last sad scene between Henry the Fourth and his heir, so beautifully dramatized by Shakespeare, is, as shown in the preceding memoir, a very faithful detail of incidents recorded by ancient chroniclers. After the death of his royal sire, Henry V did not establish himself in the sovereignty without a short but fierce civil war, which partly assumed a religious character and partly was founded on the report that King Richard II was alive and ready to claim his own. These reports were assuredly the secret motive of the exhumation of Richard's body, outwardly attributed to Henry V to his respect for the memory of his kinsman, but in reality a deep-laid measure of state policy. This tragic scene was one of the peculiar features of that era, and the manner in which it was conducted finds no parallel, excepting in the appalling exhumation of Agnes de Castro. Richard's moldering corpse was raised from its obscure resting place at Langley, and seated in a rich chair of state, adorned with regal ornaments. Henry V walked next to his dead kinsman, and all his court followed, and thus royally escorted, the corpse of the hapless Richard was conveyed to Westminster Abbey, and laid, with solemn pomp, in the tomb he had prepared for himself, by the side of his beloved Anne of Bohemia. The very next day, says the London Chronicle, there was a grand cursing of Sir John Oldcastle, at St. Paul's Cross, who had been accused of raising the reports that Richard was in existence. When these agitations had subsided, Henry V renewed his application for the hand of the Princess Catherine. At the same time, he demanded with her an enormous dowry. If the King of France had been disposed to give him his daughter, it was scarcely possible he could bestow with her two millions of crowns, the bridal portion demanded by Henry, together with the restoration of Normandy and all the southern provinces, once the inheritance of Eleonora of Aquitaine. There was a secret misgiving on the part of the French, Lest the ambitious heir of Lancaster should make use of an alliance with one of their princesses to strengthen the claim of the Plantagenets to the throne of France, yet Charles the Sixth would have given Catherine to Henry with a dowry of four hundred and fifty thousand crowns. This the English hero refused with disdain. Henry desired no better than a feasible excuse to invade France. He, therefore, resolved to win Catherine the fair at the point of the sword, together with all the gold and provinces he demanded with her hand. Henry's first care was to sell or pawn all the valuables he possessed, in order to raise funds for the French expedition, on which he had set his ambitious mind. Extended empire, rich plunder, and the hand of the beautiful young Catherine of Valois, were the attainments on which all the energies of his ardent character were centered. The annals of the ancient nobility, or gentry of England, can bear witness to the extraordinary methods the Plantagenet kings took, to induce their feudal muster to tarry, beyond the forty days they were bound to appear in arms, by their tenures. Among other possessions of the royal family, the magnificent crown belonging to Henry the Fourth, called the Great Harry, was pawned, while cupboards and buffets at royal palaces were ransacked of their rich goblets and flagons, and distributed to the knights and leaders of that expedition, as pledges and pawns, that their pay should be forthcoming, when coin was more plentiful. Even that stout northern squire, to whose keeping was confided the banner of St. George, by his warlike sovereign, did not undertake his chivalry commission, without a pawn of broken silver flagons, It was necessary for Henry to make these personal sacrifices in order to pay his army, as the unsettled temper of the times forced him to be exceedingly moderate in his pecuniary applications to his parliament. France, he meant, should pay for all. From Southampton, Henry V sent Antelope, his poursuivant of arms, with a letter to Catherine's father, dated from that port, to show the reality of his intentions of invasion he demanded the English provinces and the hand of Catherine, otherwise he would take them by force. The king of France replied, if that was his mind, he would do his best to receive him, but, as to the marriage, he thought it would be a strange way of wooing Catherine, covered with the blood of her countrymen. But the brother of the princess, the wild young Dauphin Louis, was imprudent enough to exasperate his dangerous adversary, by sending him a cask of Paris tennis balls, telling him, that they were fitter playing things for him, according to his former course of life, than the provinces he demanded. The English and their sovereign were deeply exasperated at this witticism. These balls, replied Henry, perpetrating an angry pun, shall be struck back with such a racket, as shall force open Paris gates. But on the very eve of Henry's embarkation, to cross the sea with pride and pomp of chivalry. A plot for his destruction was discovered, founded on the claims of his friend, the Earl of March, to the crown of England. This plot was concocted by the Earl of Cambridge, the king's near relative, who had married Anne Mortimer, the sister of March. This lady had died, leaving one son, afterwards the famous Richard, Duke of York, who, as his uncle March was childless, was the representative of his claims. The rights of this boy were the secret motives of the Southampton conspiracy. The grand difficulty was to induce March to assert his hereditary title against his friend, Henry V. The Earl of Cambridge intended, after the assassination of Henry, through the agency of the king's entrusted chancellor, to fly with March to the borders of Wales, where the Earl was to declare his claims, and be crowned with the royal crown of Spain, which was to pass with the common people for the crown of England, and to be carried in the van of the army on a cushion. This plot was spoiled by the romance of refusal of the Earl to assert his rights, or dispossess his friend and guardian. After Cambridge had opened his plan to the Earl of March, that prince, avowedly by the advice of his man Lacy refused to swear to keep the secret, but requested an hour's space to consider the proposition. Which time he used in seeking the king, and informing him of his danger, first requesting a pardon of Henry, for listening sufficiently, to his rebels and traitors to understand their schemes. Henry summoned a sort of court-martial, of which his brother Clarence was president, and made quick work in the execution of Cambridge, Scrope, and Sir Thomas Grey they were led out at the north gate, and had their heads stricken off, just as Henry's fleet hoisted sail, and steered, with a favorable wind, out of the port of Southampton, August 7th, 1415. Henry landed at the mouth of the Seine, three miles from Harfleur, and, after tremendous slaughter on both sides, took that strong fort of the Seine by storm, in the beginning of October. Notwithstanding this success, Disease and early winter brought Henry into a dangerous predicament, till the English lion turned at bay at Agincourt, and finished the brief and late campaign with one of those victories, which shed an everlasting glory on the annals of England. So glared he when, at Agincourt, in wrath he turned at bay, and crushed and torn beneath his paws, the princely hunter's lay. Macaulay the dreadful panic into which this victory threw france and the numbers of her nobles and princes slain and taken prisoners were the chief advantages henry gained by it he returned to england november twenty seventh fourteen fifteen and deviating from his favourite motto une for a time he gave up all thoughts of obtaining Catherine as a bride and dispatched his favourite valet robert waterton to open a private negotiation for the hand of the princess of aragon if the beauty of the lady was considered by that confidential servant as likely to suit his taste meantime Catherine and her family were thrown into the utmost consternation by the victories of this lion-like wooer the death of the eldest brother of Catherine, the Dauphin louis was said to have been accelerated by grief for the day of agincourt and his demise was followed with such celerity by the decease of her next brother the Dauphin john that all france took alarm the loss of the princes was attributed to their unnatural mother Isabeau of bavaria to whom the crime was imputed of poisoning them both the unfortunate father of catharine was in a state of delirium the duke of burgundy and the count of armagnac were fiercely contesting for the government of france while paris was convulsed with the threefold plague of anarchy pestilence and famine queen isabeau taking advantage of all this confusion escaped from her palace restraint at tours and joining with the duke of burgundy not only gained great power as regent for her distracted consort but obtained the control of her beautiful daughter However the queen might have neglected Catherine when an infant, she was no sooner restored to her as a lovely young woman than she obtained the prodigious influence over her. The maternal feelings of Isabeau seemed centered on Catherine alone, to the unjust exclusion of her other children. Catherine had very early set her mind on being queen of England, and it will soon be shown how completely Isabeau entered into all her daughter's wishes in order to fulfill this object, when it was found that Rowan could no longer sustain its long dolorous siege, Isabeau sent ambassadors with Catherine's picture to ask Henry, whether so beautiful a princess required such a great dowry as he demanded with her. The ambassadors declared they found Henry at Rowan, proud as a lion, that he gazed long and earnestly on the portrait of Catherine, acknowledged that it was surpassingly fair but refused to abate a particle of his exorbitant demands. The close of the year 1418 saw the fall of the wretched city of Rouen and increased the despair of Catherine's country and family. Queen Isabel resolved that, as the picture of the princess had not succeeded in mollifying the proud heart of the conqueror, she would try what the personal charms of her Catherine could effect. A truce was obtained with Henry V, who had now pushed his conquests as far as Melun the poor distracted King of France, with the Queen Isabeau and her beautiful daughter Catherine, in a richly ornamented barge, came to Pontoise, in hopes of effecting an amicable arrangement with the conqueror. At Pontoise, a large enclosure was made with planks, within which the conferences were to be carried on. It was also surrounded by a deep ditch, having on one side the bank of the Seine. There were several entrances, well secured by three barriers, and tents and pavilions, made of blue and green velvet, worked with gold, were pitched for repose and refreshment. End of section seven. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.